welcome and thanks for joining the first of our podcast series, Doing Business in Cambodia. Brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce Cambodia and the British Embassy Phnom Penh. My name is Stuart Clayton and I am the Country Director of the Department for International Trade based in Phnom Penh. Today we have assembled a panel of experts to discuss skills development in Cambodia. Building and maintaining a skills-based economy is a goal for all nations and is a crucial factor in competing to attract foreign direct investment. Our experts today will look at some of the issues currently facing Cambodia in building and diversifying skills and industry, including the acute impacts of COVID-19. We will also discuss some of the innovative developments in this space happening right now. We will explore what such developments mean in an ever-changing regional and global jobs market, the importance of soft skills training, and what further inputs Cambodia needs to get back on track for its recovery. Today I'm joined by Sopon Tun and Julian Manier of the International Labour Organization, Jonathan Ledger of the Department for International Trade, and Trevor Swan of Enduring Consultancy. Here is our panel. Sopon, the Royal Government of Cambodia has been working to diversify its narrow base of industries and has been investing in skills development programs alongside donor partners to achieve this goal. What are some of the exciting and innovative skills development programs happening in Cambodia? Um, yeah, there's a few um, skill development program, a new one that being introduced recently in Cambodia. Uh, but I think the one that the most exciting and innovative for me is the quality apprenticeships. Because uh, under this program, there's a new policies on particularly to how to operate the quality apprenticeship in Cambodia. And this uh, policy also, you know, um, it's designed by the government of Cambodia, by them um, also employers and trade unions. Um, this new policies particularly focus on developing a, what we call it, standard proceeding procedures. Um, op- sorry, standard operating procedure for uh, apprenticeships in Cambodia. So the, the new policy will facilitate the implementation of the Cambodian labor law. Uh, we also include the uh, shoot component on apprenticeships. So uh, the quality apprenticeship will be important for both. I think that uh, young learner, particularly for young worker and youth, but also for the industry and employers. Really interesting, thank you. So could you just explain a little bit more about how this new scheme uh, will meet the industry demands for a skilled workforce? I think the Quality Apprenticeships Programme is uh, maybe, for me, I think it's unique because uh, in general, skill development in the country is less engagement by private sector and employers. And this uh, program is, is about the more engagement of the, of the private sectors in the skill development, in apprenticeships program. And of course, with this program, we see that also private sector is a thriving seat in the vocational trainings. So I think that is really the great initiative 
um, that involves the key player, not just policy worker, but also the private sector industries themselves and workers as well. So guarantee also, you know, the relevance and the quality, but also more responsive to the market demands for skilled workforce in Cambodia. Great. Um, so uh, the elephant in the room, um, how has the current pandemic crisis impacted on the progress of uh, schemes such as the apprenticeship program? Um, definitely, I think as we know, so, uh, you know, this um, COVID-19 crisis has the unprecedented you know, impact on um, labor markets and particularly on also um, uh, uh, training and learning because all schools have been closed and, and this kind you know, of the um, impact really disrupt all learning for people. Um, so we see as well, you know, there's uh, a more increase in terms of digitalization of TVETs or skill development. And here in Cambodia, we see also digital skills just started um, because we are now training um, the industry and, and, and um, training providers in Cambodia um, from a different, um, at least seven Tibet institutes on, in a, what we call e-learning labs that offers by the ILO International Training Center in Turin, Italy for um, uh, Cambodians uh, uh, participants. So uh, these participants will be so also develop e-learning platform and curriculums so that we can also move forward with these uh, um, uh, qualities uh, programs. That sounds like a really key development, um, the e-learning. Jonathan Ledger, you visited Cambodia several times to discuss TVET issues with the Ministry of Labour and Vocational Training. However, your role takes you all over the world. On a global scale, what does the changing jobs market look like? And what kind of skills are required to meet current demands? Thank you, Stuart. This is a really good question. Uh, we are seeing a real shift in the demographics of work, um, not just in Cambodia, but actually across all of the countries and regions that we deal with, um, particularly around some of the more frontline jobs in terms of you know customer service delivery so uh, in restaurants in pubs in clubs um, all of those kind of front-end jobs but also there's a lot of the supply chain jobs to those industries but actually also you know in the creative industries and and uh, you know many other sectors so what we're going to see in the short term is is you know a spike in unemployment and that will be followed by really a redeployment of workers from one sector into another and 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 potentially you know a, a lower kind of jobs or, or less skilled jobs than they were used to and so there will be a big demand to upskill and around all of that as well you know it's not just the technical skills to do those jobs that's the issue um it will be the uh the the kind of softer skills because you know it may require uh, a different set of of skills that are required to be able to meet those demands of those new jobs so we are going to see that and and i think in the process as well a lot of young people will 
potentially get lost in the system because of course you know even at the moment we have a lot of people leaving school and they will want to start their working life and this is happening at a time when many companies are finding it difficult to survive and to, difficult to be open and so those job opportunities are not there and students you know may well decide that you know they go off and do something at university or in education in some way um uh, but you might also find that actually there are uh, swathes of, of unemployment across the youth sector and um, that may well increase well above normal uh, levels. So it's going to be interesting to see what that actually looks like. And But we are starting to see some of that happening where, you know, the jobs are shifting and, and you know, particular cohorts within the employment market are actually displaced at the moment. That's really interesting. Um, clearly, a huge demand for uh, reskilling um, and and training in general. Um, so, how is skills training provision changing in order to keep pace with our change reality? This is a really interesting question. Um, you know, because COVID kind of suddenly appeared, I guess, on everybody's radar. And colleges of, uh, and training providers have really had to diversify the way that they deliver their education and training. So, of course, you know, the obvious answer is that a lot of it has gone online. Um, but it's not actually just about the students. It's about making sure that the high quality teaching continues. And many of the teachers uh, and lecturers that are used in these uh, education institutes um, you know, they have the skills, obviously, to do what they need in a classroom, but then you've got to be able to do all of that online and make it interesting and, and still, you know, be able to impart those skills. And particularly in the vocational world, of course, which is all about hands-on, suddenly you have to find ways of using technology that still enables that hands-on uh, approach to assessment and competence to be available. And so teachers themselves uh, have had to really retrain on how to use uh, you know many of the platforms that are now available and being used you know by us all as part of our everyday work uh, to be able to deliver the sessions to students as well as looking at ways in which those endpoint assessments and and summative and formative assessments can happen throughout the the, the period of their education so so I think it's not just an issue for the students in learning to cope with it. It's also for the teachers. And on top of that, we have the the further issue of how do you actually support the welfare of students? And when you look at the way that students normally operate, you know, they go into college or they see their training provider or their employer, and, you know, there's a comforting uh, kind of armor you know that the, that the teacher can provide uh, and some counseling and things like that but of course when you're working remotely that that is much more difficult and again you know uh, the the education establishments have had to really think about how do we engage with the students and look after their welfare and support them because you know if many students are looking at this uh, situation as a really difficult time for themselves and rightly so and not just because of the, you know, the lack of employment prospects in the short term, but because, you know, they're suddenly thrown into this world uh, where, you know, they are not able to engage in their teachers in the same way. And it might be uh, exam season, as we've just gone through in the UK. So, it's, you know, it's going to be the same in, in any other country. And so they'll be under pressure from that part of the 
equation as well. So I think, you know, it, it is about the student coping with it. It's about the education establishment evolving the training delivery, but also then the teachers evolving to continue that high quality delivery that they do and then wrapping that all around with a nice safety blanket of welfare. That welfare point uh, is so key. A lot of work clearly there in adapting to the new norm. Um, so how can skills providers and employers work together to create the skilled workforce that industry needs? Uh, this is a really good um, question and something actually that the UK and, and actually many other countries have been working on for a long time. Um, in the UK, the, the whole of the, the technical and vocational system is built around the premise that employers lead the way. And so right from the very outset, when we when we look at, you know, what does industry want, the best people to ask are industry. And so we do a lot of work in making sure that we understand clearly of what industry is supposed to be doing. And, you know, we want to make sure that we hear those voices. And, and if you're going to ask that question, you do really have to listen to what they're saying. The the. Um, follow on from that is that you know they will help us uh, by providing their professional expertise in developing um, standards and qualifications and curricula and they will help us support the teachers in their development so if there's new technologies that come along you know employers offer opportunities for those teachers to be able to learn about those new technologies and so you know it's not just a beginning process it's a kind of lifelong process and we talk about lifelong learning for students and lifelong learning for you know teachers and, and their development but actually it's lifelong engagement as well because uh, what we try to instill is that the employer has a role to play all the way through that process and that includes at the end as well so apprenticeships in the uk now um have endpoint assessment and that endpoint assessment is effectively a panel of employers that will sit and have a professional discussion with the student to make sure that they have that rounded knowledge that's required to achieve the apprenticeship standard so um you know that's really key in a lot of countries, and I've been working in ASEAN, they've been you know, grappling with employer engagement for some years. Um, one of the key points I guess I would make is that in any sector, you're not going to engage everybody, so stop trying to. And I think there is this thing that everyone thinks you've got to engage with all the employers, and you haven't. Um, you've got to engage with you know, different cohorts of, of employers in different ways. And I would suggest that if you look at any particular sector, there will always be a bunch of employers that are really enthusiastic about skills. And they are the first ones that you want to get in a room and have a discussion with. And, and you need the CEOs on board to drive the strategy. When it comes to developing occupational standards and curriculum and supporting teachers and the like, then you need to actually ask the CEOs to, you know, lend you their operations staff or their production staff, because, you know, with all due respect to the CEOs and their greatness, you know, many of them don't have that hands-on technical knowledge that's required to actually, you know, you know write about what makes an engineer or what makes a good uh, production uh, member of staff. Um, it will actually be the production managers or the uh, the production technicians and the operational technicians. So, um, so you know, you're you're working with an employer at different levels in different ways, and you're pulling on different bits of their resource. Now. It's just worth remembering that those that are really enthusiastic about skills will be less than 5% of our whole sector. 
So it's a tiny amount. Then there'll be about 15% of employers that if you give them a gentle nudge, they will come off the fence and they will, you know, come and cooperate with you and, and get involved. But, you know, they're not so proactive. Um, you know, they don't, they're not, you know, kind of mad about skills, but they'll do it because they know it's the right thing to do and all of that. So, so that's good. But, you know, 80% of a sector usually actually doesn't want to really get involved in skills because it's somebody else's job and, and you know, why should we bother? And that's okay. Because actually, you know, the 20% can set the standard and drive the curriculum and all of that. And, and actually, then the sector will follow. And the most important thing in that engagement is that whoever you have around the room in terms of that discussion and that support from employers, that you must make sure it's representative of the whole sector. So, you know, small, medium, large companies from all the geographic regions uh, that you're trying to represent and instill um, skills education into and I think if you can do that and you really do then listen to employers and if they say you know we want you know a particular qualification delivered in a particular way or developed in a particular way as long as you actually do that then they will think that they are being heard and, that, and they will invest their time and energy but they won't if you just give them what they apparently need or don't need um, you know you've got to be able to do it in a way that's cooperative with them and collaborative Absolutely. Um, the key word there, collaboration. Thank you very much, Jonathan. That was part one of our podcast on skills development in Cambodia. We continue our conversation in part two, which is available to download now.